This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alrighty guys, welcome to part three of three on event profiles, I guess you would call it. Basically today we're going to cover players at these events. Not necessarily players, but attendees may be a better term for it. Yep. Who you're going to run into, what you can do to benefit your business, benefit your trades, backpacking, whatever, at events going forward, assuming we're going to see these more open-ended TCG con style events. So, let's get started. Yep. So, we decided to kind of break this down into two large buckets, into uh, <clears throat> casual and competitive. And we understand that when you play Magic, there are multiple different uh, player profiles. There's the... Johnny, Jenny, Timmy, Tammy, um, Spike. Spike, yeah. Remains Spike, because that's the coolest uh, dinosaur in the land before time. And, it is, objectively. And we just want to say, okay, segment, casual, and competitive. And these two, because these two profiles exist in almost every facet of the game, right? You, you're looking at EDH constructed, the main sides, etc. This is what you're going to run into. And uh, what we were seeing at these events basically all said and told heading into 2020 i'm still seeing more competitive players in the room than casuals despite things like the command zone the mystery booster drafts which kind of came uh, towards the end uh, i was at grand prix new jersey for the unset pre-release of uh, that winter and these events as sides that i just mentioned don't necessarily cater to enough competitive uh, enough casual players to really bring them out in force to overtake the main plus the competitive sides to grind into the main or grind into the next level of competition within the game. Um, but I expect this to flip in the future entirely and we'll soon be catering to our cases and our mentalities to the casuals that show up, which I really enjoy. I, I yeah. like that idea a lot more than uh, catering to com the competitive nature. And um, as we go through, I'll, I'll kind of outline why. But that's basically what I've been seeing at events from like 2012 to 2020. Despite the fact that the per that those numbers did change over time, where it was skewed almost entirely competitive and no casual, uh, and things kind of did come together a little bit, they never really got to a point where they're even close to something like 60-40. It was still, and from what I saw, mainly slanted to the competitive nature of the player up to the pause and events. And I, I think that's definitely the case. The more that you have a focus on tournament play, I think you'll see events like that yep. where you have that tournament play and you do see the more competitive, but there's also, and I know you're familiar with this, your Comic-Con audience. Mm -hmm your ASEN audience, your Gen Con audience, where it may just be people that like casually play Magic. The tournaments are there, but they're not really the focus. Yep. It's much more of an opportunity for them to hang out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to know, because if you're going to something like a TCG Con, where the emphasis is the tournaments, where even, yeah, you'll probably get some locals that may be a bit more casual, but they're still there to be competitive and play in tournaments and win money. Yes. Whereas, you know, when you look at an anime convention, it's probably going to be someone that's in cosplay that doesn't really know magic, that happens to have a couple of decks and a trade binder on them. They're like, oh, you have a wasteland. I need this. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of thing you'll see at, like, a Dragon Con. And it's important to know what your player profile is at these events. Yes. 
because if you're going to, you know, cast a wide net, which I've said previously, you know, if I want to capture more players at these events, I'm going casual. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just the way to do it. And then have a staple stock, basically, of your competitive stuff. And I think it's important to keep in mind, not just, you know, if you're going in blind, it's fine to ask people. It's fine to ask the event organizers or other vendors there if you know them, like, hey, I'm going to this thing. I'm not entirely sure what to expect. You know, you've done it a lot more than I have. What should I do here? Yep. And I think that, you know, what we saw was, like you said, it was still mostly competitive, but there was a lot more casual thrown in the more they emphasize the command zone or the more they emphasize side events. And honestly, maybe it's the same for you. I loved old GPs when you could go there and just grind out side events and that was better EV than the main event. Yep. Yeah. If you were just grinding sides, because it was a lot more casual, a lot more laid back. Yes. Yeah. There wasn't all the added stress. Like that was great. I would much rather see something that has that player profile going forward than, you know, a Grand Prix type of deal. Yeah. Where everyone's yeah. there for the main, and I've got to have forty copies of Primeval Titan because Valakut has some new tech. Yep. Yeah. The the casually competitive mindset is always something that uh, people have kind of affirmed is one of the best parts of day two or day three of an event um i had a friend go to nats one year and after busting out of the main with Cobblade, just ground their ev back x2 inside events just xoing everything in the winner boxes with Cobblade because they just got to play super relaxed competitive magic and i think that kind of feel overall is still really good for the game and it's something that needs to be kept in mind as you're looking at this stuff and as you're stocking your cases, you know, it's still something to be aware of. That is kind of a player profile. Somebody, like, sits in the middle. They're, like, in that era, so Cobblade era, you had Cobblade, and that was the deck to play. Some people uh, kind of prayed at the altar of Jerry Thompson and played Splinter Twin because Deceiver Exarch and Splinter Twin were in standard together. And then there was the casually competitive player that played red-black vampires. Free the political of, prisoner. Yeah. Sorry. It's on the list. We might get it back. But that that other profile, that third profile, the casually competitive player, was going to be the one buying your vampire nocturnuses from your case because mm-hmm. they that deck was semi competitive, but it was kind of the casual deck to play. You weren't playing the meta deck. You weren't being a net. I mean, you still were being a net decker, but you weren't being like the net decker on Cobblade, right? Yeah. So that's something to be uh, aware of as well. That that profile does exist, and we'll kind of get to that later on. And this is probably one of the most important parts of understanding your event. And we're not talking about FNM because at some point no. when nothing's a GP, everything's an FNM and it's just going to be casual all the way down. And that's going to be super easy to determine. This is the kind of weird stuff where it's like, all right, I'm going to a magic fest and the format is X. Do I need Y with me? Yeah. Kind of thing. So moving on from that, and we've mentioned before on the cast uh, here and there, like uh, seller profiles. So when players sit down with you, you know, the kind of uh, people that do sit down with you what can you expect from like you know a competitive player a casual player or somebody that like hawks their collection or not and similar similarly when they're buying as well and there are a lot of you know profiles for this and so you've just kind of got to be ready and understand that any one of these is you know a kind of approachable in my experience the competitive player is actually like a, a weird beer because at the end of the day, it does come down to two profiles, but I've seen things like they get frustrated, they bust out of the main, and they sell their deck immediately because it underperforms. They don't care what they're going to get. They're just going to walk to the closest vendor, yes, 
the entire deck and you just walk away. On the other hand, though, you might have the competitive player that nickel and dimes you over everything, and they're there to fight for everything. And that's kind of what I've really seen from competitive players overall. They know what they need. They either know what they need from your cases, and so they're going to try and extract every little bit of value they can, or they're just fucking done getting yeah. out of here. I, um, I I try and set the bar really low, and I I'll, if I know other vendors in the spot, we'll, I'll usually try and get some action on round three, the first deck you buy. What do you think it's going to be in that yeah. format? Um, yeah. Because that's when that person's just going to bust out and, and be done with it. And there's very little in between beyond the, the person that wants to fight and the person that's going to yes with you, and neither of them is kind of the wrong uh, you know profile, but that's just something you're going to have to expect from your competitive players. They're there yeah. to continue playing this game competitively, so they're going to have that attitude when they sit down. And I think that's something you see a lot more, too, with the competitive players is the latter mindset, where it is like, I know the numbers. I know, you know, I did my research, whatever. I've got that, whereas your casual profile is a lot more like, oh, you've got some cool shiny stuff, I've got some cool shiny stuff, let's try to meet in the middle somewhere. Yep. And it's a lot more like a conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like when we did our you know, buyer profiles and we talked about your numbers guy versus your experiential buyer. Yep. It's, you know, your, your competitive players care a lot more about the numbers guy, they want to go to that guy. Your casual players want to go to the experiential guy because they don't necessarily need to know they're getting the right numbers. They just want to feel good about it and get the card that they want. And that's really one of the biggest differences between your casual players and your competitive on a, from a vendor perspective is the fact that you get those two wild extremes with competitive yep. and you get the happy medium with the casual guy. Yes. And it's not necessarily about like getting maximum value. It's, hey, I'm foiling out this door in the explorer list and you know, lands matter, and I need a, I don't know, a foil land tax. Yeah. Cool, you've, you've got one. Okay, let's let's trade let's for it. it. Yep. And yep. I feel like those are also the guys that you see throughout the weekend. Mm -hmm. And that is also important, because your competitive players, you may see them periodically, but it's probably going to be, you know, oh, I'm doing great on this event, if you strike up a conversation with them. Yep. The casual player is going to be the one that says, hey, I need that foil land tax. Did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? And they'll keep coming back through the weekend. And those that's that's a really that's a really good contrast between those two that I'm glad you pointed out. Is you do have that much more extreme, like you said, almost argumentative yep. from some of the competitive players where it's like, well, they're paying twelve on this. Yes. Well, yeah. I, I'm I'm paying ten. You know, yep. are you gonna lose my business over two dollars? I mean, I'm not going to lose your business over $2, but I'll buy the rest of your stuff yeah. or, you know, meet and, in the middle somewhere. We'll figure it out. Yeah, but. and it's, it's because it's kind of, it. I don't want to say this and make it seem like I'm going to shit on what they did with the Pro Tours, but playing competitive is kind of a lifestyle where it does have to fuel itself after a point in time, and you need to extract as much value from what you have on you to get to the next mile marker. So the next deck the next format the next event because it is a lifestyle it's kind of a job so to your point of you'll see the competitive players uh maybe another time or two throughout a weekend because their job was most likely the main and when they're done with the main there's no reason to be that's 5 p.m they're out yep. you know there's no Go reason on. to come back unless they want to actually peruse the artist booths or, or make some larger purchases later on <laughs> um and i think 
that's kind of important to know. Not every competitive player is like that, but it is that kind of mindset where like your competitive players, like your casuals, they will graze your cases, but they're not necessarily there to interact with you. They're most likely killing time between events or trying to find like that one last piece of X that they need yeah. for another deck somewhere else. And so it is a very specific thing they're trying to do with that. And uh, moving on to the next bullet point we have, you mentioned before, casting a wide net. Capturing as many players and its customers as you can throughout a week, at a, throughout a weekend, building a rapport, building a relationship. And the only note I have on this is, this is probably the hardest part of an entire event. And in my experience, this is the part that my show leads have struggled on the most. Yep. And purely when it comes to stocking, do you stock for the main if it's not standard or modern? So do you stock to a legacy main? Um, you know, how much EDH stock do you think you'll need to be bringing at any given event, depending on location? That is a very difficult uh, task to take. And eventually you've just got to settle on somewhere, you know, something, you know, using data you have and, you know, but be it like actual from previous shows where you can look at sales, et cetera, or maybe anecdotal based on what you've heard and read from tournament reports in the area. You can say like, you know, we say this every now and again, we know like down in, you know, uh, in Texas and a lot of the uh, U.S. Southeast, Burn is a very favorable deck to be playing. So the more yeah. Burn staples you bring, the better it could be for you. That's not anecdotal data. That's just something that happens. You go look at large event reports and the over overwhelming majority of players playing anything that isn't a top meta deck are probably playing Burn. Yeah. So you need to Counting count to 20 is easy. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, I prefer Blackjack, though. So yeah. my sapperling uh, symbiosis and fires you have in my say hi. There you go. Um, uh, I, I think, too, when casting a wide net, something that, you know, should go without saying is obviously customer, you know, don't be a dick. Oh, yeah. Like, that, you know, when you want to see these people throughout the weekend, throughout different events, I mean, there's some guy, I don't know his name, five straight GPs, he came up to the booth I was working, and we sat down and had a two-hour conversation while I bought his cards. Don't remember his name. But I was super nice to him, recognized him, waved him, waved to him everything. And like a little bit of niceness goes a long way in casting that white net and yes. creating a positive impression. Because like, look, have a good interaction with someone. They're going to go tell their friends oh, yeah. at the event. Hey, you're going to sell your stuff? Go to this guy. He's great. Yep. You'll love him. Yeah. Like it goes a long way. And it's it's not just the stock, which does matter, but it's also that intangible like customer service, mm. you know. Just nod, smile, wave, hey, what's up to everyone that walks up to the booth. It's fucking exhausting. It's awful. Yeah. Don't don't be but it performative. Goes such a long way. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't be performative and don't force it. You know, you it just it's just gotta come natural and that's not for everyone. You know, a no. lot of booths employ a number of people to do different jobs because they are good at various jobs and not good at others. So yeah. you know, Keep that in mind if you're looking to actually stock a booth with people. Not everybody needs to be customer service. Not everybody's great at it. Maybe they may, they may be good some uh, something administrative, or something on the back end that you need at the booth. So like a plus. Uh, the other thing I wanted to to, to think about when it com came to this, and it's not something I have a lot of experience with, but I've seen is uh, also tailoring. If you're going to do a printed buy list or printed hot list, tailoring it to events in your locations. Um, you know we, we so. Oh, sorry. Go I was going to say, we joked about, um, was it MTG Deals? Are they the ones with the projected buy list? Uh, MTG Mint, Mint has the projected they, buy list. Yeah. For like 
six months in a row in North American GPs, the card in the top left of their buy list was Black Lotus, and it just increased every weekend. Like, yep, that, that was showmanship. It was just meant to, like, help float the price externally. Yeah. Um, that, that was kind of fun to see. But <clears throat> everybody has their own flavor of how they create their buy list to where they're going. So when we were at Mini, the thing we did for our events, because we had the printed buy list, Mm -hmm. was we had the hot list, which was basically the 100 cards that we curated from our data that were the best sellers, half of which at any given time had to be in standard. Mm -hmm. Um, The rest were typically EDH, but that was our printed buy list that we had. And that was how we curated ours. There's some people like Strike Zone, Strike Zone has like a twenty-page doctoral thesis. They have two, as a buy list. They have two buy lists, and I love it. They have a hot yeah. list, and they have a please don't walk away with this stapled twenty-page buy list. Yeah, <laughs> that there's like ten of sitting in a pile on the yep. corner. That's like, oh, I'm gonna walk off with this anyways. Uh, and that's that's something that's important too is setting up your buy list because it used to be you know when '95 was the first person that came in with those boards mm-hmm. TV for boards. hot yeah. the TV boards for their hot list. That was actually a game changer. It was. Because then, you know, Mint got the projector. Other companies got bigger chalkboards for the back. Some got bigger screens. And it really forced a lot of change to happen. And that's something to be mindful of that, you know, you may not need to be the biggest, but when you've got a screen that has your buy prices on it, and MTG Mint may be in the very back of the room, but I see that, you know, $15,000 buy price for a beta Lotus, and I'm like, oh, they're paying good money on old stuff. Yep. That's another way you can draw those people in from a greater distance. Because at that point, it's not just, you know, hawking your wares to whoever's nearby. Yep. You have basically free advertising up there for everyone to see. Yeah. Um, the the last couple of events I worked with Face, we definitely curated our hot list based on two things, what we needed and the format of the event. So for DC, which was Modern Horizons, we had uh, a lot of modern staples on there. And for Vegas, that's where we had our reserve list on there. Yep. Um, we joked about like shuffling Volcanics within the room from other vendors to us. We were just buying it for more than most other people were. They were able to snag them and make a profit on us, which is fine because we had the outs for them immediately. They were just zeros yep. in our inventory. Same thing with Mox Diamonds. They were a zero in the inventory. And Vegas is a show where you can put that on your list. And as long as you're competitive, you're, you'll probably vacuum up what you need. And so that's very important to know where you're going. Not every area is the same. Not every area is a destination. Not every area needs to get the same bylaws, especially if you're looking for a lot of high-end cards. Yeah. They're just going to chew up space. And it might intimidate some people just to see, like, all this high-end stuff. They'll be like, well, you're not buying anything standard. It's not on your hot list. Why would I sit down? So that's also something to be cognizant of. So moving on, speaking of bylaws and stock, expectations about you know what you would see in cases um, we have a sub note here does the main really matter you know yeah yeah i uh i it 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 matters because generally speaking that's where most of the people at the event are there for yep you know it, sure sides get more people over the weekend but any individual event the main has the most single registrants uh it's also worth noting that yeah you want to bring some stock for the main but you do want to be mindful of side events. You do want to be mindful of the people that are driving in mm-hmm. to these events from two or three hours that may literally just be coming to like, 
hey, my LGS doesn't have a great selection. I'm going to come check out the vendors for a couple of hours. And that's kind of when it gets to what you were saying, where, like, how are you drawing eyes? And if you have nothing but high end, that may intimidate some of those more local players that may, all right, well, I'm not going to. It's too rich for my blood, yeah. Yeah, too too rich for my blood. I'm out on this boot. And that's fine. You just have to be willing to accept that. Personally, I'm a big fan of shiny stuff. Everybody loves shiny stuff. Competitive players love shiny stuff. Casual players love shiny stuff. So I try to, when I'm in an event like this, have foils showcased on the largest table facing. And then do staples on either side of that for the main. And that's just for me to draw people into the booth. Uh, You know, you get blinded by some white nemesis foil that's not Lin Civi. And you're like, ah, I can't see. I've got to go see what it is. And you go in and do it. And I, I think that we touched on this a little bit in the first couple episodes of this as well where i talked about bringing the staple box and that that stock does matter for every point we've mentioned because that can help you cast a wide net Mm -hmm. because the people that show up at future events know uh shit i'm short a path to exile i don't know what happened where can i get it they've got one that's not in foil because the rest of my deck is not in foil and i don't want it marked and and stock matters a lot as far as what they expect to see, that's kind of like a brand-by-brand brand thing I mm-hmm. found. Yep. You know, that's when we talk about your vendor profile. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. The The one thing I, I did note, because this is always something that was interesting to me, when you look at specifically uh, Grand Prix, Mag- now Magic Fests, well, maybe still Magic Fest, we don't know, whatever they're going to be, uh, like nationals and regionals before, not regionals. No, just Nats, because that was a multi-day thing, right? So yeah. Grand Prix and Nats in the in the <clears> old <throat> system. These are multi-day events, okay? So you need to stock for a multi-day event. Now, when you look at the main, okay, there's a day zero for these events. Yep. Day zero is Friday. That's what that's the grinders are coming in. They're going to try and grind their buys in, uh, when it comes to Grand Prix or... Uh, uh, just uh, player points. The for nets, it's to try and grind in. So day zero, if you're stocked for the main, that's great because the majority of the day zero events are usually in the format of the main, or yep. in the case of pro uh, PTQs, the format of the pro tour coming up. So you know very much ahead of time what's going on. Now that's day zero stock. Day one stock carries you through a couple hours of day one a couple people might come in scrambling for the last few cards they need for their deck for the main some people will be looking for stuff for later on in the day in the sides now this is where it has been really interesting for me to think about is after that point let's say around four or so of main day one so saturday catering to the main is kind of a, a dead offering you're done. People yep. aren't going to need that standard stock. All of it. People won't need all of that modern stock. You could, in theory, reface your cases, I think, in the middle of day two. Like, if you took a lunch break in the middle of a round and refaced all your cases, you might actually be able to see more sales throughout a weekend if you were to do so. And when I think of does the main matter, that's what I think about is does the main matter of for a day and a half 
when you have to be there for three days overall. And I, I, I don't think so. I, I didn't think so before, and I don't think so now, especially with the, the size booths are now, and you can have so many case facings. I don't think it's necessary yeah. to make the majority of your booth cater to the main. Uh, and I, I think that's especially relevant now because if we get to something that is more focused on those side events, you're going to want stock for the main, obviously, because, you know, people are going to spend money there. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's what they're there for. And they'll probably, if they scrub out of the main, they're probably going to try to, I don't know, grind side events in the same format, maybe sell their deck into another one like you touched on. But it's, it's important that you do have that modality to it mm -hmm. that i have i have actually seen some vendors will have their main stock right and they're like hey great here is everything i have for my main stock for the main and by day two they pull it all they're they're just done they're like you know what we're done with our main stuff here's our backup stock this is our you know absolute heaters for edh and yep modern and middle school and old school and all this stuff and that's something that i think is probably going to get more common I, as you start to see events take on a broader scope based on how they're changing competitive magic and if we get you know sort of these pseudo cons that start popping up like tcg con where it is just to hang out and like fuck around for a couple of days uh, as opposed to some of the more like private tournament events mm -hmm. that go on with large player turnouts. I think it's going to be a lot more common that you'll start to see that. And I like that it actually does de-emphasize the importance of the main event because like you touched on by day two, you're, you know, even day one, in a lot of cases by round four, day one, that stuff's dead. Yeah. It's, it's not going anywhere. And you, you know, took up luggage space or whatever else case space to stock those cards and they're kind of just sitting there now. So they're not nearly as important as they were. Yep, and as something else could be. So that that's always been intriguing to me, and, and I've always been curious why, you know, we never churned stock for the Sunday or the last day of the event, whatever day, um, whatever, whatever day it happens to be. But in regards to everything else and what you would expect to see in the booth, exactly what you touched on, you know, you're going to, almost every booth is going to have some amount of high profile cards in it uh, it could be you know old school foil uh, reserveless foils reserveless cards in general but as we mentioned before it just kind of like proves worth and it's so shitty to say and like i dislike that you need to do that but at the same time it's like a vendor that doesn't have a dual land might not be seen as a vendor of the same quality as the rest in the room so a lot of people might not be willing to engage it's yeah. kind of ridiculous and i'm not all about it but at the same time it's not something that's going to stop because these large events are uh do help increase your sales velocity on all those cards you could have them sit on your website and not churn or pull them from the website put them in a case and you know put more eyes on them over a week and then you might get on your website like it's it's very difficult in that regard and then everybody else is going to have like you said those side cases or binders and that's just going to be your infinite backstock you know your format staples for everything low-end foils whatever you need things that people have asked for but you don't care to usually you know want to stock unless you have a convenient location for it or just damage the plate cards which is also a very viable backstock if you've ever been to an scg you know how important that is oh yeah 
that's you know you can get collector's edition twisters there for dirt cheap compared yeah. to what they should be yeah, I, bought just, a, I, sh- I shop their cases whenever i can I, yeah i it's great that's how i got my gta's that's uh how i filled my back line of patriarchs biddings like i i love that case i i really do i i'm not about playing uh non-pristine cards i'll oh man if, if it's sleeve playable gimme man i'll jam it i'm not please yeah, I'm, I'm not collecting GTAs. I'm playing GTAs, so. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's kind of it for the bullet points that we have for the section, unless there's anything you want to tack on. No, I'm good. All right, all right. So we can move into picks, and I believe it's your week to go first. So you it, can take this one away. It is. So my pick is a card that's not released yet. Yep. Prismatic Ending. This card's dumb. This is going to make Death and Taxes better for the next three months that Legacy still exists until Urza Saga kills the format and they say we fucked up in making the format in the first place. Besides the point, Prismatic Ending is easily one of the best pieces of removal they have printed in years. Yep. Uh, one white X, Converge, Exiles anything because it's less than or equal to. So it is something that easily gets around Chalice of the Void. It kills any type of moxin that they may have, for one. It also kills dudes. And it turns out, in formats where the cards are super cost-efficient, like they are in Modern and Legacy, that's pretty effective. Pretty good, uh, yeah. Kills jit, kills literally anything. It's just exile and non permanent. That's all insane. Way, all the way up to five. Yep. Because you can't make a sixth five. color. That's true. Uh, the one downside to this card is that it's sorcery. Now, which version am I picking? The set foil. Not old border. Set foil. I think set foil is going to have the lowest floor and the highest ceiling, comparatively, of any of the variants that you have out there. Now, currently on TCG, there's only two set foils for more than the old border foils that are posted, which is ludicrous. The old border version is obviously superior, but... I think that what you'll see is on release day, when we have that race to the bottom on yep. Friday, you're going to see set foils for like five to six bucks. I, That seems fine. Five to six dollars for this effect? Great. Yeah. Buy us that all day. It's just from EDH alone, mm-hmm. it's probably a $10 foil. So I think timeline-wise... I'm going to be a little bit longer on this one. Okay. And the reason being, it seems like it's setting up from what I've heard from distros and everything. Modern Horizons 2 actually is going to be effectively a print-at-will product that is fairly easy to get compared to what we've seen over the last year or so. All right. Uh, because of that, and that again, this is my timeline is if this holds true yeah, that I'm hearing from Southern and GTS... I'm looking at about a six to eight month timeline before you can effectively out to a buy list for profit. Mm-hmm. Now, typically in the past, you would have gone longer. Yep. But as we've seen, EDH foils, it's quicker and quicker mm-hmm. when they start hitting their uptick now. I mean, you had three months for Panharmonicon foils to take off, Paradox Engine, all that. So it's, it's not going to take as long, but I think with it being a print, yeah, at yeah, yeah. product, it'll be a little bit longer. Yep. So I'm saying in probably about six to eight months, and this is something that I wouldn't go like triple digit deep on, but I wouldn't mind picking up about 20 copies for 100 bucks if I can, yep. and then just throw them in a box and check and buy list periodically Why for not? them. Yeah. Uh, just 
super effective, efficient removal that hits everything. White doesn't get card draw, but it does get another piece of catch-all removal, which yeah. I think is super important. Yep, uh, I think there's a good point to be made here, and this goes for anything that hit really came out of Modern Masters 2 and some of the meta picks from Modern in general. There's going to be a Flashpoint, I think, sometime uh, this summer. I was expecting it to be um, in August because both TCG cons are going to have paper events. But if nothing really happens at either of those events, if we don't get coverage, we don't get deck lists, if they're not high-profile events, then that might not happen. The first TCG player event does happen in uh, TCG player, sorry, TCG con event uh, happens in two weeks. So that's really going to give us the data point we need to see, okay, will this actually impact card prices? By the time the Texas one rolls around, which is about uh, the middle of August, I think the 13th and the 14th or the 14th and the 15th, we will know exactly what the impact of this event will be on, uh, can have on paper, and we will have uh, a larger amount of supply of stuff like this flowing into the ecosystem as well. So I would be paying attention to modern prices going into and coming out of both of those events. It, it seems like Wizards has decided they want to make modern a thing and just abandon Legacy instead of abandoning them both, which I am hoping means we get the political prisoner unbanned. I, Honestly, I'm not sure Twin's good enough for modern, but no, that's besides I, the point. I, I'm going to agree. I had a discussion with somebody. I was like, Twin's not that great. And they said, yeah, but Twin has force of negation. And I had to remind them that Twin is a sorcery. And then they said, but Twin has Pact. And I said, but Twin has always had Pact. And it was yeah. a very quick conversa conversation of why Twin is not no better now than it was before. Ever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's perfectly fine. I'll probably join your picket line. Yes. I'm, I'm never getting pod back, so I got to I gotta jump ah, on some bandwagon. I played... God, right? I had a very tentative time with a modern format. Every deck I played got banned. I was one of those, per one of those people. Yeah. I had all my storm pieces banned, then I had all my pod pieces banned, and then I had all my twin yeah. pieces banned. Every modern pro tour resulted in a card from modern being banned, except one that resulted in modern being banned as a pro tour format. Alright, that's fair. So. <laughs> Alright. The the card I'm picking is not modern related though. It is I'm we're going back to EDH and I'm 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 going with a flip planeswalker. So uh, I've been sitting on this pick, not for too long, for a couple of weeks. Uh, my expectation is that it's going to be real flat for a while and then just rock it. And I'm going with Arlen Cord from Shadows Over Innistrad. So Cards Ar good. Hmm? Cards good. Yeah. Arlen Cord hits, you know, at 30 on release and then just trails down because it doesn't really have a home. Wasi um, just never did much with this card to kind of support its play style so it just kind of uh, shows up in EDH which is great it, it is it's it's awesome that it's not tied to anything specifically neither the front side or the back side of Arlen Cord really play into the theme you want it to and that's why we're picking it now basically so uh, this doesn't buff wolves at all Arlen Cord mm -hmm. uh, much like uh, Grook is it the Veil Curse or whatever the flip one was from the original Innistrad yeah. just happens to make wolves. There's no werewolf buffing on either side. The front side of Arlen uh, just gives one creature plus two plus two in Vigilance and Haste. On the back side of Arlen Cord, however, the plus gives creatures you control plus one plus one and trample until end of turn. And that's why this shows up in just like turn him sideways gruel decks you know you take a look yeah. at the commanders and you do see Ulrich up at the top which is the thematic general but after that it's just like gruel smash um, throw mock is interesting that plays into the ult but we'll get there in a moment so you look at this and it's just like all right gruel or team return sideways cool all right that's what we're looking to do um, 
in regards to the, the format play, the creature stat buffs, uh, it's got, sorry, it has creature stat buffs with an interesting emblem, and the emblem on it, because it's actually kind of hard to bring up the backside to make it readable, uh, says, you get an emblem with creatures you control, have haste and tap, this creature deals damage equal to its power to target creature or player, right? So being able to plus on both sides is really nice. That means you can just take up the loyalty on either side until you get to where you want to be with the emblem, which only costs six. This comes in with three loyalty. And then you just, just get to blap somebody's face off, right? So the plus on the backside helps you maintain relevant creatures throughout the game, giving them all plus one, plus one, but importantly, trample, which is kind of a sticking point for gruel and EDH yeah. for some reason. Uh, the emblem, though, like I mentioned, is where you want to be because you can just delete somebody. You, know, you just tap a creature, delete them, you know, yeah. when games go long, and in, in conjunction with cards like Warstorm Surge and uh, like Mage Slayer Blade, uh, and a number of the available most popular generals currently playing this card are really looking to do that. Just make one big creature through some form, some number of static effects, and just blap somebody out the game. So, yes, I was gonna say I also like it because while you know it, it does all the gruel things you want. It also, and this is, I think, long-term, and you're probably going to touch on it, uh, the fact that it produces wolves, I actually like, because we're getting Twilight, the set, and I think we may get more eyes on it, if nothing else. What if that. I told you the 10th word in my next sentence was werewolves? All right, let's hear it. All right, so my timeline, six months, <laughs> with the release of Innistrad werewolves. <laughs> and most likely... Great. Most likely nine months as players settle into their theme deck, right? This mm -hmm. is actually why I'm picking this now. I, I, I looked at Vampires and I gave a lot of the same reasonings back then. We're coming into the set, right? These cards are flat, but they're good. And yeah. they've never supported werewolves. So sales right now have been really light. Uh, thanks to TCG Player, we can actually see this now. Uh, where'd it go? Uh, bup, 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 bup. All right, so I'll, I'll pop this up. Uh, we can see the, that sales overall of Ireland Court have been uh, pretty light across all conditions and all styles foil or not but they're steady okay yeah. so i expect natural churn to kind of carry the price upward slowly into the set where we expect to finally get decent edh wolves and werewolves that will abruptly force cards like this and hunt master of the fells uh, and some others on the fringes of the werewolves tribe upward because casuals drive the market yep so this is again getting ahead of the wave overall whether or not this is going to be super duper popular i don't know i know with shadows over innistrad people were very upset that ulrich was actually like the werewolf general because there wasn't a gold one before they finally got one but it's not good watsi just hasn't given the players a good werewolf general yet so my expectation is that we're finally going to get it they've had enough time they're creating a split set something in this set is going to be the werewolf general. So you're going to see something like Arlen Cord fit thematically. It transforms. It is a werewolf. Awesome. Yeah. Sign me up. Uh, like you were I, saying. Okay. Oh, no, no, you're good. Go uh, um, this isn't something I would go super deep on. You could probably just slap a crisp, a crisp twenty down and pick up, you know, somewhere between seven and ten of these. And I think that's probably the max you want to be on right now, given the overall trend for demand if 
we get more werewolves. If it looks like we get a really good general, you could probably go deeper, but I don't want to be sitting on too many copies. In regards yeah. to foil versus not, I'm not quite certain how I want to handle that one yet. Um, I inconveniently only own foil Arlen cords because nobody wanted them in Shadows, so I have a bunch of pre-release and set foils. I won't be picking up any additional copies of this card. I have what I need in foil. If I didn't, I would probably try and pick up like two foils and then fill out the rest of my cart to about $25 with non-foils. And I think that is personally where I would want to be with this right now. I think for me, that's the safest play. A foil copy of this card is about 5 to $6. You pick up two, you know, that's 12 and you can still get another five to six non-foils. And I think that's a perfectly good hold for a card that has been holding steady for both retail and buy price for a fairly long time. And I think it's worth mentioning with the foils especially, uh, we got it from the Vault version, yep. which actually, I will say this, of all of the From the Vaults, Transform is the only one that has good foiling because each side has a one-inch thick sticker on it, so it doesn't curl off yeah, you, you, like you, the you. rest. Yep. So it's it's kind of, you know, I'd be... I, I myself am not sure that I would want to go in on the foils either super deep, and that says a lot for me because I love foils. Yeah. But yeah, anyways. Yep. Uh, quick stats for day of versus Friday. When I picked this day of, CK was buying six set non-foils at $1.85. On Friday, they were buying 31 at $2.30. They're buying 32 right now at $2.30. Uh, the TCG market, that's a little more interesting. There are now more copies on the market, or there were more copies on the market at a lower price on Friday, 129 for 325 on Friday versus 123 at 386 uh, back at the end of April when I first added this to my list. Right now, the market has uh, kind of sat stable at about 326. And I think this is similar to, the, I can't remember what Carter was a couple of weeks ago where we were basically on the crux of seeing the market completely eclipse the average and um, buy price as well on a card. And at that point, it's just going to run away. And with the increase in buy list combined with stagnation in the open market for a long enough time, I think people are going to miss out on this card and then all of a sudden it's gone. Yeah. But that'll be, that will be further towards set release. I don't think it's going to happen right now, and I don't think it's going to happen without some good werewolves. So we're trying to be predictive and get ahead. That's the other reason why I don't like going in super deep right now. 20 to $25, I think, is a fine you know, gamble, and then you can just sit on it long term because it's a werewolf planeswalker. Somebody will buy it or trade it, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, get your value uh, out of it. I also think you know if anyone's concerned about reprint equity, I wouldn't be super concerned about it because we just keep getting new Arlens. And I think it's more likely that if they want to go with the werewolf theme, we'll just get an Arlen that actually is a werewolf lord. Uh, yeah. Be it a planeswalker or a creature. Seems more like something Watsi would do if they wanted Arlen in Twilight Werewolves. Yes, yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, and who's to say that it couldn't be Ulrich either? Because uh, Ulrich is also a flip card, right? The, yeah. They have options for the werewolf tribe, and it's not to say that we're going to get Arlen Cord back. Because they keep yeah. iterating on this flip planeswalker that makes wolves and make it a little different and a little bit better each time. So. Yeah. That's my pick for the week, and I think we're all set to head out, right? 
We are indeed. All right, so we will catch everybody next week. Until then, though, we are at MTG Cabalcast on Facebook, on Twitter, on Patreon, and on YouTube. You can find the the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. If you want to talk to me directly, I am at Halt I am Reptar on Twitter. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week. <laughs>